Father, thanks for this day and thanks for bringing us out on such a beautiful day. Thanks for your grace to us and pray that you would teach us now in this time together we may honor you. Thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, this is going to be our last real discussion on the whole topic of the textual criticism. It's going to wrap it up. And uh, the reason, just to repeat this, the reason we're talking about textual criticism is not so that you all become textual critics. Because probably nobody in here is going to be one of those. But it does help when you turn on the TV and you hear people, you know, make uh, comments such as, well, we're not really sure the Bible is reliable. We don't really know if the Jesus of the New Testament is the real Jesus. We're not really sure Paul wrote this stuff. We're not really sure this, that, and the other thing. This is to give you some answers to that, to help you understand that these people speak from ignorance. And if you really understand the biblical text and what's going on, you should have no problems with things. So that's why we're doing it, okay? It, it really gets rid of the uncertainty and the fear and the questions that rise when you see this kind of stuff come your way. So that's why we're talking about it. Um, what I'm going to do today is go through some examples and, and show how this works out so you understand what the techniques are um, in doing textual criticism. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about before we get into that is this concept of what we call theological redundancy. All right, and what we mean by that um, what is a redundant system? It's a backup, right? So if your brakes go out, what do you have? An emergency brake. Hopefully it works, right? But you have an emergency brake. You know, um, you have backup batteries. You know, if the lights go out in the building, you have emergency lights that come on that are battery powered. Um, you know, if a hospital, if the power goes out in a hospital, what do they have? A backup generator, because you don't want the lights to go out right in the middle of open heart surgery. Um, so that's what a redundant system is. And what God has done with the scripture, is he's built into those theological notions that are essential to our salvation, essential to eternal life, redundancy. What we mean by that is they are found throughout the scripture. There is no single passage of the Bible that has a doctrine in it essential to your salvation that is in and of itself alone. It's always repeated throughout the scripture. Alright? God has, God has seeded his divine truth throughout the Bible. Alright? And that's what we want to talk about with the theological redundancy. And that's what we mean here. All truth that is necessary for salvation, holiness, righteous living is found clearly in the Bible. We call that perspicuity. That's a fancy theological word. Perspicuity means clarity. Alright? So, for example, the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, where is that found? Everywhere. Jesus is God. Where do you find that? Everywhere. I mean, you, you know, you run out of ways to count these things. So, anybody that comes along and says, well, you know, we're not really sure Jesus is God because the Bible is really not clear on that. You know, you almost want to slap them upside the head and say, you're not reading the thing. Um, what did Christ tell the tell the Pharisees or the Sadducees you err not knowing the scripture alright you guys should know this stuff you don't and on the road to Emmaus what did Christ do to the two disciples that were really down in the mouth how do you how do you get them out of their funk he used the scripture he showed them beginning from the law and the prophets how all of this stuff should have happened alright the point is God has put his truth clearly in the scripture. It's not hidden. It's not encoded. So this whole concept of Bible codes is a bunch of baloney. God does not encode stuff in the Bible and we need computers to figure out what he really said about things. Alright? No essential truth hinges on any single passage. And God has preserved all necessary truth in our surviving manuscripts. Preservation. So you've got perspicuity, redundancy, preservation. God has preserved his truth. We're not missing anything. So when some guy comes along on the History Channel or Discovery Channel and says, you know, we dug up this other manuscript and it's really cool because it gives us another side of Christ that we never knew, you can dismiss that out of hand. You don't even need to go down that path, alright? That's just a bunch of liberal scholars or um, what you want to call pagans musing over things they don't understand. We have God's truth. It's here in this book. Clarity. That's just a fancy theological word which means clarity. Perspicuity. Clarity. It's clear. The doctrine of um, the deity of Christ. I mean, come on. 
you know, you, you have to willfully ignore that to say it's not there. Because it's all over the place. You, you can't miss it unless you want to miss it. All right? Um, and here's the other important note to understand. When we're talking about the textual questions, you know, those 166 things that we have to really, you know, pay attention to, if we take every one of those passages out, it does not affect any of our theology. We just erase all 166 from the Bible. You still believe the deity of Christ. You still believe the blood atonement. You still believe in doctrine of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. Nothing is impacted. We're not talking about stuff that impacts theology. And that is one of the number one things that the people want to try and make you um, doubt when they talk about this stuff. Well, you know, we're not sure about this passage, so, you know, we really don't know if Jesus is God or not. Come on. It's all over the place. You take all the disputed passages out, you still wind up with the same theology that we have now. You still go to heaven if you believe the truth of the Word of God. So don't, don't get into the trap of thinking, well, if I miss one of these things, I'm damned forever to hell. That's just not the case at all. Alright? And I, I put this all, you ever see Jack Chick Tricks? Those little tracks, those little Chick Tracks, you know? I, this is one of the little ones. I, I put a little page out there, you know, they, where he, He's a KJV-only guy, by the way. He's a rabid KJV-only guy. Basically, he's saying if you use any version other than King James, you're going to hell. Because it's the only authoritative, inspired English translation. And this is a, just a little snippet from one of his little tracks I have. Um, where, you know, you got a guy there saying, well, let's look at the original Greek text. And they say, well, the Greek they use, look, look what it says, Satan's Alexandrian manuscripts. It's satanic, see? to use that. And uh, then you got these guys saying, well, gee, I don't know what to believe anymore. I guess I can't believe anything. And what this is here is they're basically saying this. If I can't believe that the King James is the inspired word of God, I can't believe anything about it. Is that a true statement? No. That's not a true statement. By the way, let me ask a question. Um, anybody in here understand everything in here? Well, how do you know any of it's true? If you can't understand the law, how do you know anything is true? See? You see the argument? You see where you're going on this? Just because you can't know everything doesn't mean you can't know anything. That's the point. And the any things we know are true, no matter what version you pick up, except for the ones that are, you know, deliberately altered. They're the same in any version. You're not going to miss any essential theology. All right, so this is FUD. You know what FUD is? Fear, uncertainty, doubt. This is FUD. All right? Let's look at the Trinity. I put some representative passages on the Trinity here. All right? And these are just representative. This is not all of them. This is just representative passages in the Bible where you find the Trinity mentioned. And you know, one of them is in red. Alright, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. 1 John 5, 7. 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Alright, that's the verse. That's in the King James Bible. And by the way, that's one of the texts that the KJV only people say, that if you miss, if you don't have it in your Bible, you have a satanic version because you're denying the Trinity and you're denying the deity of Christ. Now let me ask a question. Do you need 1 John 5, 7 to prove the Trinity? Why? It's all over the place, right? I don't need 1 John 5, 7 to prove the Trinity. I got Isaiah 6, 8, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. What's Christ called? Mighty God. What does that mean? He's God. Alright? See, you're not even a Bible scholar and you can figure that out. It's clear. It's what it says. All of these, Acts 5, 3, and 4, you've not lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. What is it equating? Lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to the God are the same thing. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is God. See? It's throughout the Bible. You don't need 1 John 5, 7 to prove the Trinity. It's throughout the Bible. This is the theological redundancy thing we're talking about. Alright? And then, um, let's look at the deity of Christ. Here's another one. Where's that found? All over the place, right? 
Do I need 1 John 5, 7 to prove that Jesus is God? If I deny that 1 John 5, 7 is in the Bible, am I denying the deity of Christ? Because what do I have to get rid of? All the rest of them. If I want to deny the deity of Christ, I not only got to get rid of 1 John 5, 7, I got to get rid of everything else. He's, he's God. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, 1 Timothy 3.16 is the one we talked about last week. Is it a he or is it God? Remember the, the little, we talked about it on the board there, whether it's a T-H or an O, whether it's he or whether it's God, where it says God was manifest in the flesh or he was manifested in the flesh. Well, if you're a KJV only guy, it's God is manifested in the flesh. And if you believe it was he, you're denying the deity of Christ. No, I'm not, because I've got John 20, 24 through 29. I've got John 8, 58 through 59, where Jesus said, I am. He equates himself with the I am. Yeah, there's no doubt who's it, who's it talking about. Jesus. All right, so the context tells you who it's talking about there. So the point here is, and this is why I'm bringing this up. When, when we talk about some passages in the New Testament that we may have a question about, we may have difficulties with because we can't exactly get the original, we're not quite sure, we're not affecting any doctrinal position that we have. We're not affecting any theology. We're not, we're not in danger of denying any essential doctrine whatsoever. It's unaffected. Because the doctrine that we need to know to get to... In fact, let me ask you, it's this interesting question. In John chapter 20, John writes... These things have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. What is John saying about his book that he just wrote? What's he saying sufficient for? These things I've written unto you that ye may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John is making the claim that if all you have is the Gospel of John, what does it have in it? Everything you need to do what? To believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that by believing you may have life on his name. John is saying, my book is sufficient to give you the facts needed for eternal life. If you erase the rest of the Bible and just had the Gospel of John, you have enough. That's the idea of redundancy. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. John being the book that emphasizes the fact that Jesus is God, they, they don't like it. They like to think the part. But you understand that the early church went back and rewrote the Gospel of John and put all of that in there for us. I'm just, that's what they say. Yeah. The point is, it's all over the place. All right? Now, I'm going to bring something practical to all of you. This is practical stuff. I'm bringing it down to the practical level. Because a lot of you are saying, okay, this is cool. What does it mean to me? Do I need to worry about this kind of stuff? Well, th this is a model that I've come up with. This is not in any book. This is me. But I said, you know, there, there are different levels of people who study the Scripture. There's the devotionalists. What do they do? What do the devotionalists basically do, you think? Read something every day, get a little snippet out of it, and off they go. All right? Um, they're not really into the deep study of the Word of God. You know, they're the Our Daily Bread type stuff or something like that. Or maybe they, they even read our church uh, devotions and just skip out and head off. Pardon? Yeah. Just, just, they're, they're at the surface level. They're doing it, but they're at the surface level. Then you've got somebody that gets down a little bit low. They're the student. What do they do? Well, they're going to dig a little deeper. They're going to study it. They're going to try to understand it. They're going to, they're going to dig a little deeper down in there to understand what the text says. They're, not just a, they're going to take a class. They're going to take a Bible class like you're all doing. You know, they're, going to, they're going to get down deeper. What's a scholar do? What do you think the scholar's doing? They not only study, but they, yeah, they research. They uh, go into the original languages. Yep. A scholar is somebody that digs down underneath that. They not only dig into the meaning, they not only do the analysis, they're digging down into the text. They're, they're looking at maybe multiple Bible versions. They maybe even pick out their Greek lexicon and things like that. They're digging way down deep. And then you've got the theologian. Who are these guys? 
they're the ones that write the commentaries. All right, all right. Now let me let me throw this uh, challenge out to you. Commentaries. All right. Probably nobody in this class, including myself, will ever hit the theologian level. But you know what we can do? What everybody in here could hit? You could be a scholar. You could hit that level. I mean, there's enough helps out there. There's enough Bibles material that you could hit that level. Precepts goes down to this level. Precepts goes down to this level. And, and, and I, I would put the challenge out to you. If you find yourself at the devotionalist at the student level, consider going down a little deeper. And again, you say, well, you know, I'm not smart enough. Look, you've got the Holy Spirit, right? Who gives you understanding and biblical truth? It's not your brain. It really isn't. It's the Holy Spirit. Ah, some of you might have to work harder than others, but you can get there. You can become that. So the challenge is, wherever you're at, try to go a little deeper in it. Now, why did I bring this up? Why did I bring this model up? Well, when it comes to textual criticism and all these issues of the text, as a student, if you're, just a, if you're a student of Scripture, do you need to worry about textual issues if you're at the student level? No. Probably not. Um, pick a good translation, stick with it. Pick a good one. Some people like the New American Standard Version, some like the New International Version, some like the ESV, some like the KJV. Pick one. It's all right. Because all, all of them have the truth in them. All right? If you want to go a little deeper as a student, just maybe pick a couple of translations. You know, they have the King James and the NASB, or, you know, sometimes they have these parallel Bibles, there are like four translations in it. Pick one of those. And if you want to go a little deeper, you've got word studies. You know, Precepts has all kinds of word studies you can do. All right? But the point is, if you're a student of Scripture, you really don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great that BibleGateway.com. I don't know they have like 20 versions out there or something, you know. But the point here is this: for the most part, for everybody in here, for the most part, if you're at the, if you're at the student level, you don't need to worry about textual criticism. You don't need to read about past and say, "Gee, I wonder if that's the real word in the Greek." You don't need to even go there. All right. You don't need to go to that level. All right. Just stay at the top level. As a scholar or a theologian, what do you need to do? Well, now you're going to start asking those kind of questions. You're going to start digging into that word. What does that word mean in the, in the original language? What is the nuance of that word? And is there something in there that, that helps me? Now, again, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to pull this one off. They got the Vines Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. They got some good Bible dictionaries that give you some nuances to the words and, and helps you understand um, what the words mean. A good example is justification. Diakosune. It doesn't mean to um, become righteous. It means to be declared righteous. It's a legal declaration. It's a legal term. So if you dig a little deeper, you find, wow, that's really interesting. So when I'm justified before God, it's not that I'm made righteous. I'm declared righteous. He acquits me before the bar of God. I'm, I'm declared to be free from my sin. Why? Because somebody paid the penalty. It doesn't mean to be made righteous like the Catholic Church tells us. But if you understand the Greek word, you understand that nuance. and You get, you get a little bit deeper in it. Alright? Now, if you want to be a theologian, okay, now you go out and you learn Greek, you learn Hebrew, you learn all of that stuff. If you want to get there, you need to go down to that level. But, again, for the most part in here... A good Bible dictionary, a lexicon, it'll, it'll help you. And, and they've got some excellent Bible study works out there that you can use that really enhance your biblical study significantly. All right? Now, what about if you're teaching? If you're teaching through a text at a little deeper level like I'm doing here, do you need to worry about textual issues? For the most part, no. For example, let me ask you a question. If Pastor Jim stood up and he's preaching through the, the text... And he comes to a passage that's disputed, and he goes into all the disputing, the, the, all of the arguments about whether that's the real word or not. What would he probably do? Cause more confusion than it's worth, right? Or cause doubt. 
So probably you're not going to do that. You're not going to go there. Why? You're just opening a can of worms that you can't sufficiently close in an hour. Don't go there. All right? For classes like this, we, you're, you're running with the big dogs, as my father-in-law said. You know, we're all running with the big dogs here, so we need to think about these things. But for the most part, when you're teaching your precept Bible study or you're doing don't get into the textual issues. All right? Because you don't need to. It's just not needed at that level. Um, it depends also on the kind of people you're ta- you know, you're, you're teaching. If you've got some people who are really deep in students, you know, and they got their little Greek lexicons with them at the Bible study, Maybe you can go down that route, but you really don't need to hit those for the most part. You know, when I'm teaching through um, books of the Bible, I rarely talk about textual issues. You just don't need to go there because they're so rare and so few and so far between. It causes more confusion than it solves. All right, but there are contexts where you need to look a little deeper. A group of people because they're interested in learning versus whether you're teaching a class for college credit. Right. If you're teaching a class for college credit or something, you you need to get into this stuff. You know, and that's why I'm giving you just a taste of it here. I'm giving you a taste of it, what it's like. All right. Um, as a pastor, should you bring them up? For, for the most part, no. All you're going to do is just cause confusion. Because in, in any congregation, you've got those people that can understand it, that can, under, that can go with it, and you've got other people that just lose their marbles. They just don't know what to think. So it's better not to cause confusion by bringing these kinds of things up. Um, what I think Pastor has done a very good job at, if you remember the last sermon, a couple of them, is he'll use the original language to bring out a nuance. Like, um, you know, how I give Jesus Christ being amazed. You know, that's helpful, all right? He didn't get into textual issues. And he probably, I don't think he even gave you the Greek word behind it. I'm not sure. But that's helpful. That, that enhances your study, all right? But for the most part, don't, if you're preaching through text of the Bible, don't start getting into all the textual questions about maybe some passage you come up on. It's just not worth it. It causes more trouble than it's worth, all right? So that's the practical side of this. All right, that's, I'm trying to make it practical and, and helpful to you, okay? Now, I'm going to go through four examples. I've got ten in the handouts. We're not going to go through all ten, so you can breathe easy. We're going to go through four of them. I, I picked four, and maybe if we have time, we'll go through another one, but for right now, we're just going to go through four such examples. So I'm going to fast forward here to um, the Revelation 22:19 one. All right, let's go to Revelation 22, 22:19. It's the case of the missing page. All right. Anybody have? Can somebody um, read Revelation 22:19? Okay. Okay, what version do you use? Okay. Anybody have the King James? And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Okay. So your version says book. Your version says tree. Okay. Now, this is a favorite text used by the KJV only boys because they come along and say, well, if you take uh, anything out of the Bible, if you try to do any kind of textual criticism or you make any slam against the King James, God's going to take your name out of the book of life. And people get all excited and upset. The problem is, it says book in the King James, says tree in the NIV. So what is it? Which one is it? Is it book or is it tree? Well, let's look at it here. This is the actual text here in the King James and notice I highlighted the word book. Okay, book. Alright? That's the disputed word. Is it book or is it tree? Now what's your job as a textual critic? What's your job? Context. Context. But what, what's your number one desire? Okay, you want to find out what was the real word. You're not worried about the theology at this point. What was the word? What did John write when he wrote this down, what was the original word that he put in his text? That's the question you want to answer. 
Alright? So let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the manuscript evidence. We have a pile of manuscripts over here of Revelation. And we look through all of them and guess what we find? All of them say tree. Every manuscript we have of Revelation, every one of them, say tree of life. Every one of them. There's none that say book of life. So where did book of life come from? Well, um, we didn't talk about all these, but there are Greek texts that scholars came up with as they compiled all of the manuscripts. And one of those was compiled by this guy named Erasmus who compiled this thing, um, his text that became known as the Textus Receptus. You ever hear that? The TR? That's the text behind the King James. That's what they used to translate the King James Bible. Erasmus, you know, he took his four or five manuscripts and he created this compiled Greek text that was used as the basis for your King James. He had a problem, though, when he did this. He had, he had a sort of an embarrassing problem. Um, I'll get to that in a minute. Just so, so you can all tell people and, and impress them that you've seen the original Greek. Here's the page out of my UBS textual, um, my, my critical text. And uh, what it's saying right here, this is, this is the Kai, um, this is the one right here. This is the, the book, or the, the, talking about the tree in the book of life. And um, down here, it has the various places that you find that. I'm not going to go through all of that. It'll give you a headache. But this is what the textual, the critical text looks like. Um, this is what it looks like in the TR. All right, the text is written. There's a UBS. The UBS is a Greek text that they use. Not only the, the Byzantine manuscript, they use all the manuscripts. It uses all the manuscript evidence that they had. Erasmus only had a very few manuscripts that he used. Alright, follow what's going on here? He had a few. The UBS has all of them. And what I showed you here in these two things, that you don't need to worry about reading Greek. Alright, but this is the UBS Greek, this is the TR. Alright, and you see here, Biblu, Biblu, Bible, Biblu, book. Alright, this is Biblu, and the other word is Zule, which is um, tree. Or um, tree, zoos. All right. So the question then is, where did where did Erasmus get this biblu? Where did it come from? How did he put it in there? Well, he didn't have a Greek manuscript of the last six verses of Revelation. The manuscripts that he had missed the last leaf of the book of Revelation. He didn't have those last six verses. So if he didn't have those last six verses, then how did he create a Greek text of the last six verses? Well, what did he think he did? He had Latin. He had the Latin. And so what did he do? He translated the Latin into Greek and used that as the last six verses. And when he did that, he made a mistake. He translated the Latin word liber... That Latin word means the bark of a tree, the inner bark of a tree, referring to a tree, as book, because they used to write books on the bark of trees. So instead of translating it tree, he translated it book. He mistranslated it back into the Greek. And then that wound its way throughout the King James Bible and throughout many other versions. Dave. Latin would have been the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate he had. Um, I'm thinking somewhere in the 1500s. What would the King James people say? It's irrelevant because God re-inspired his text. It's irrelevant. I'm, I'm just saying it's irrelevant to them whether there's a Greek text anywhere in existence with this because God re-inspired it. I mean, I'm, t- I'm telling you how they, they see it. God re-inspired uh, King James. Therefore, whether the word is in any Greek manuscript or is irrelevant to them, the King James is authoritative. That's how, they, that's how they put it. Now, let's ask a theological question here. If your name is not in the book of life, 
or you don't get to partake of the tree of life, where are you? You're not in heaven. So either way, what happens? You're out. The whole point I'm trying to make on this is that these things occasionally slip in. Now, what can we do as a textual critic? If we have the text, we know what, what, should, what should it read? What should the actual text read? Tree. tree. If I don't get to partake of the tree of life, I'm not in heaven. Alright? That fits the context of the passage. So it should be tree. But, whether it's tree or book, guess what? You're not in heaven. Now, is any of your doctrine affected by that? Is there any theology affected by that little error there? No, it's not. Besides that, the book came to the paper, paper came to the tree, it's all the same thing. Right. But it's just, it's just I, w- I want to point this out, that in the very text that the KJV people use to consign anybody who does not use the KJV to hell, itself has an error, a textual error in it. All right? So that's, that's what I'm wanting to get with that. Now, let's, does that make sense, what I just said? Is it all making sense here? All right? Is it all making sense? Now, let's go to the one that they really argue about. Which is First John five seven. There it is. It's a phantom statement. We call it a phantom statement. What does a phantom statement mean? Never existed. All right, it was never there. All right. Now, by saying that, the KJV only person they're sitting here saying, "I'm on my way to hell because I've just denied the Trinity and the deity of Christ." All right. Let's read First John five seven in the King James. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear record, witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Alright? 1 John 5, 7 is uh, that little verse in there. It's called the Kama Yohanin. That's just a fancy word. You can tell somebody you learned a fancy word today. Kama Yohanin, okay, is the technical theological term they use to refer to 1 John 5, 7. All right? So at first blush, what is 1 John 5, 7 telling you? The Trinity. All right? The Trinity. So the question then is, and as a textual critic, what is your job? You got all these text, all these manuscripts in front of you. What is your job? To compare them and come up with what was really there. Was it really there? Yes or no? Well, let's look at some of the evidence of it. Um, when again, let's just repeat what I said. Any attempt to dispute or question this is seen as a sign of apostasy by the KJV only crowd. You're denying the Trinity. You're denying the deity of Christ. You're in danger of hellfire. Um, this is, the, this is the fun one here. Again, this is Jack Chick's little track that he has. And I, I like this little one. Look at the pyramids with the devil behind it. You know, I sort of think that's... Any, any manuscript down in Alexandria has the devil behind it. Although, by the way, in Alexandria, Athanasius... Remember who Athanasius was from the second class? What was he the champion of? He disputed Arius. What did Arius say? Jesus is a created being. And what did Athanasius do? Who was the bishop of Alexandria? He said, no, Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Alright, so... But the whole point here is, is you see some of the little things that they want to do. This, in fact, here's the one here. For the three that bear record in heaven, the Father, Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. This verse is messed up in the Bible. You call the Bible, then you're looking at a translation that came from Satan's mutilated Alexandrian manuscripts. You better get rid of it and burn it and go get a KJV Bible. That's what it's saying. All right. Well, let's look at the evidence behind this particular verse. Again, unless you read Greek, don't worry about this. But um, here is the the textual note on verse seven and eight. All right. And uh, what it's basically saying there, okay. As you read down through here, this is saying in all of these different manuscripts, here's your manuscripts here, all of these, 
He's going down. All of these manuscripts. All of those manuscripts omit it. And there's only four manuscripts that have it in it. All right? Four manuscripts. Or actually, it's eight manuscripts. All of them from the 14th century. So, of all of the texts of the God's, uh, first John that we have, all the quotes of the early church fathers, hundreds of these, none of them have this in it. The only time this thing shows up is late in the 14th century, which is the 1300s. That's when it shows up, all right, in the text. So, let's look at the test of antiquity. All the older manuscripts omit it, so what would you assume? It's probably not in there, all right? The text of number, I've got hundreds of manuscripts that omit it, I've got four that include it. Probably not there. The text of variety, what's variety? Manuscripts from different areas all over the empire. All the manuscripts from all over the empire, all of them omit it. Only four have it in. What would you assume? Probably wasn't there. Okay, let's look at another. The test of respectability, all the, all the oldest and the most respected manuscripts omit it. What does that mean? It's probably not there. The test of continuity, what's that? Um, the text over time. I mean, I have texts from the 3rd century working all the way up to the 12th century and 13th century, and it is not there at all. All of a sudden, in the 14th century, it pops up. It's there. But I have 1,200 years where it's not. Text of context. If you look at the context, it doesn't fit the context of what John is talking about. He's talking about the witness of the, of the baptism of Christ, the death of Christ, and the witness of the Father in the life of Christ as being the Son of God, that doesn't fit the context. It, reasonableness, it doesn't fit the text. And then look at this here. Um, there's hardly any evidence that this appeared at all. The, the oldest reference actually is the Vulgate, the Latin text. The Latin text of the church. And uh, in the manuscripts... The late Greek manuscripts that we have, they all appear to be a translation of the Latin Vulgate. Now, the Greek text is a translation of the Latin, not of another Greek text, a copy of another Greek text. So where did this pop up? It popped up in a Latin translation, but it's not in any of the Greek manuscripts. It's not in any of the other versions of the Bible that we have. The Syriac, all of the old Armenian versions, all of that stuff. It's a very late edition. So the question then is asked, well, where did it come from? Where'd it come from? By the way, here's the eight manuscripts in which it's in. Um, these are all, if they're a small number, a word will number, they're a cursive manuscript. These are all the ones it's in. Um, and you can read through that. I'm not going to go through the whole stuff here, but these are the, the manuscripts it's in. There's eight of them. Let's think about this. What was one of the big fights in the early church? What did they fight about for 700 years? Deity of Christ. Is he God or not? All right, well, now let me ask a question. If you had 1 John 5, 7, what would they have done? No. They would have mentioned it, right? I mean, if you, if you were disputing the deity of Christ, all you have to do is go to 1 John 5, 7 and say, well, John answered the question for us. It says he's God. Guess what? Nobody, nobody mentions it. Nobody references this verse. It's... it's it's not quoted by any early church father. When you're talking about the Trinity and the deity of Christ and all of this stuff, no one even talks about it. It's, it's like this verse is not even there. It's not even there. And it's absent from all of the early translations. All of them. The Syriac, the Gothic, the Coptic, and all these translations that go way back. It's not there. Mm. Seven. 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 Verse seven. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. It's not in any text that we have. Except those... Well, part of, part of eight. Part of eight. The part, the, the part I just said. There's a part of eight that's there, but the part of eight that's not... 
is what I just said. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Yeah. Could have been. Or when they were translating the, the Latin Vulgate, they put it in as an affirmation of Christ's deity. And, and it picked up from there and went into these later manuscripts. By the way, just as a site, is it a true statement? Sure, it's a true statement. We're not arguing about whether it's a true statement or not. But again, that's not your job as a textual critic, is it? What's your job as a textual critic? Should it be there or not? That's your, that's your question. Alright? And you're not... God's not going to condemn you to hell trying to figure out what it really was. That's not the point. The point is when you look at the evidence, there is no... or there is scant evidence for this text ever being there. So was the supposition that this verse was added during the King James translation? It wasn't added there. Um, it became part of Erasmus' Greek text, but he did it under duress. He did not think it should be there, but he was told to put it in there. All right? He did not believe it should be there. He argued against it, in fact. And would you suggest that any subsequent translations or Bible revisions would alter the text of verse 7 as a result of that incident with the rest? I mean, they might include it. I mean, the KJV includes it, but the NIV does not. If you have an NIV Bible, it's probably not there. American Standard might not. Yeah. And the point is, it's just, there is no evidence, there is no solid, conclusive manuscript evidence that that verse should be there. It's a true statement, but it's not part of what John originally wrote. That's the question. Huh? It got there because it came in from the Latin Vulgate. I don't know why it was put in the Latin Vulgate. It could have been a marginal note that somebody inserted in. You know, it could be they, when they were doing the, you know, copying the Latin Vulgate, somebody had a marginal note saying, boy, this sounds like, and somebody said, oh, well, we'll just stick that in there. It's part of the text, and it got its way in. But when you look at the Greek, all the manuscript evidence we have, it's not there. All right? Conflation. Yeah. The example of conflation. Now, now again, we're not talking about you denying the deity of Christ. We're not talking about you denying the Trinity. We're not talking about any of that. We're asking whether that verse should be there or not. And that's why I mention it, because some people get confused. Because, you know, if you go and you're studying First John, and you've got your KJV in front of you, you've got your NASB in front of you, and the NASB doesn't have it, what are you going to be asking? Where to go? Why is it not there? Well, I'm answering that question for you here. All right? Trying to answer it for you. All right? And this is interesting. In the first version of Erasmus' Greek text, he did not include this. He did not have it in in his first version of the, of the compiled text that he had. He did not have this in there. And uh, when questioned, he said, well, it doesn't belong there. It shouldn't be there. And he refused to include it unless somebody came up with some manuscript somewhere that had it in. And, well, guess what? They dug up these eight late manuscripts, and so he put it in. But he originally felt that it did not belong there. We know a lot about him because he, we have a lot of writings about him. And did he write his own? Did he write We have notes from other contemporaries and things like that talking about him. And by the, listen, understand the, the issue here. For the most part, they did not have a complete text from Matthew to Revelation of the Greek New Testament. They had a bunch of manuscripts of Matthew and Luke, and, and you had to put them all together. All right? And that's what they did. That's what Erasmus did. And he did a fairly good job, but, you know, there's a couple of spots where he made some errors, but he did the best he could with what he had in front of him. All right? The whole point here, folks, is that this, this text is probably not there. It should not be there. Um, what well, I said, it's most likely a gloss. What's a gloss? Marginal note. It was a marginal note. It made its way into the Latin Vulgate. It got picked up in some really late Greek manuscripts that were evidently translated from the Latin, and that's what we have. All right? So if you don't use that verse, you're not in danger of hellfire.
Okay? Is there any questions on this? I'm trying to make it clear and understandable and practical and reasonable. The thing that's so baffling to me relative to the King James Adam stance is if they believe the scripture that says all scriptures given by the inspiration of God and if they believe that, you know, Ephesians 2.89 is true, that we're saved by grace, not by works. And thirdly and finally, if they agree with the words of 1 John 5.7, how then can they say it's satanic? Because, I can't put it, because they come from the viewpoint that if it's not, if they can't believe every single word, they can't believe any single word. You follow what I'm trying to get at? If they can't accept every single word as the word of God, then they can't believe any of it is the word of God. It's an all or nothing proposition to them. All right, and they they believe that God re-inspired this text. You go out, I'm not making it up, you go out and do a KJV only look up on the internet and you'll get thousands of pages. I got one from some doctor that said this, this, this is the, um, he uses the verse out of um, um, Psalm that says God's word is true as gold refined seven times in a fire or something like that. I remember that verse. And he says, well, since the King James was the seventh English translation, it's the purest. And he actually counts the English translations. Of course, he has to skip one to make it work, but he does that. And he's got a whole big, long dissertation on this thing. Um, I picked up another one where a guy got a counterfeit King James Bible, he said. He picked up a King James Bible, and it was a counterfeit. And the way he determined it was a counterfeit is because they spelled Savior, S-A-V-I-O-U-R, instead of S-A-V-O-U-R. All right, and, he, and then he went through and counted all the different words the guy's got too much time on his hands to pull that one off. And it had this counterfeit King James Bible. So you got counterfeit King James Bibles out there. And uh, if your, if your um, um, version does not have the seven-letter designation for Savior, which is the seven pure um, number, and it's only got the six-letter, that's the, that's the Savior of men, that's evil, demonic. I'm not making this stuff up, folks. I'm not making it up. You're going to run into these people. Some of them exist here in this church. They're hidden, but they're here somewhere. All right? You're going to run into them. And if you teach anything, you're going to run into these guys. All right? These men and women who believe this. And, you know, you don't have to go down that fear and uncertainty and doubt. God has preserved his word, folks. It is there. All right? So don't get too excited about it. Um, as promised, I'm going to do two of the disputed passages. If somebody has the NIV... Um, Look up John 7:53 and tell me if it's there. John 7:53. Anybody have the NIV? It's not there. Not there. How about the KJV people? Oh yeah, it's there. What is this? This is the story of the woman taken in adultery. All right. Um. When you look at this particular story of the woman taken in adultery, um, and that would be uh, 752 through 8, I forget what is it, 8, 11. Um, when you look at the manuscript evidence for that, all of the older manuscripts, every one of them does not have it. These are P66 and P75, the papyri are the oldest. They do not have this story in them. It's just not there. All right. The earliest manuscript that has it is the Codex Bizet, all right, dating from A.D. 450 to 550. Now, what do you know? You don't know this. Maybe you know this. I'm going to see. What do you know about the Codex Bizet, D? What was that used in translating? The KJV. It's the only one, it's the only papyrus, actually, that they had when translating the King James. All right? That has it in it, but that's the earliest, that's the earliest, Manuscript with this story in it, all right. Um, and uh, this is in my UBS. It has a note there that it's not in there. Um, 
for example, it says on 753 through 811, um, it omit, it's omitted in P6675, it's omitted in Vaticanus, it's omitted, omitted in all of these um, unseals all the way down. Look at all of those. All of these manuscripts is miss, missing in. The lectionaries is omitted. The Syriac omitted. Um, the uh, Coptic text here omitted. The Armenian text, the Ge Georgian text, the Slavic. The Diatessaron of or Origen omits it. Chrysostom doesn't talk about it. Serial Tertullians, the Cyprian man. All, all those miss it. All those don't have those. All those are all the older ones. And then there are some that include it. D is Bize, which is the Codex Bize. And then you got some of these minuscule manuscripts and some of the Byzantine that has it in it. All right. So you have it in. All, none of the older ones have it. Some of the newer ones do. All right. That's the question on this. Yeah. So in Revelation, what it says. The question is, were they there in the original? Were they there? See, that's what your job as a textual critic is to do. Were they there in the first place? When John wrote John, did he have this in it? That's, your, that's the question you need to answer. Okay? That's the question. And what happens in a lot of the cases, they only said, well, we're afraid of taking anything out, so we're going to leave it in. The problem is, if you add to the book, God adds to the plagues. So do you want the plagues, or do you want your name out of the tree of life? You know, you got to flip a coin and figure out which which curse you want. I'm, I'm being a little bit funny on that, but but your job as a textual critic is to say, okay, I got all of this evidence here. Should it be in there or not? Should that story be there or not? That's that's the question. We're going to answer that. All right. We're going to look at that. Let's look at antiquity. The oldest text. What do they do? They don't have it. How about the test of number? If we just do a vote between all the texts. It's, it's almost split, actually. The older ones don't have it. All the newer ones do. But if you add them all up, it's about, you know, it's about a 50-50 split. The text of variety. What's variety? Manuscripts from different areas, different time periods. That, that favors the omission because we've got all kinds of stuff from all over the place that do not have it in it. Whereas all of the older minuscules, which are from the same area, have it in there. All right. Then you have um, respectability. Okay. The older the, 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 the texts that are closer to the source do not have this in it. Test of continuity. Well, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, and all of a sudden it appears. All right? That's, that's the whole idea of continuity. So if it all of a sudden appeared, then where did it appear from? There should be something that it appeared from, and we don't have anything that... It's not like we have two really old manuscripts with it in it. We don't have any old ones with it in it. And it just appears. Um, text of context, well, you know, it could fit in there, it could not. You know, there's, there's no way to really know. Um, it, does, it, it sounds like something Christ certainly would do, right? But it, it's not there. Um, test of reasonableness, the same thing. So, you know, when you stop and think about it, well, it, it could be there, it could not. So let's ask some other questions. Let's look at the grammar. Well, when you look at the grammar, there are some words found in this little story that John doesn't use anywhere else in any of his writings. Now, that's not a surefire way to omit it. That's not a surefire reason. It's evidence. You understand that? It's just evidence. That's all. It's just evidence. All the older manuscripts exclude it. So the question is, if they all exclude it, why did it all of a sudden appear around 500 A.D.? And here's the interesting thing. The texts that do have it have significant variations within the story itself. There are significant variations in the wording of the story, the ones that do have it. All right? So, let's look at the Old Latin. The Old Latin goes back to 200 A.D. It doesn't have it. Syrian, Armenian, Gothic translations, they omit it. Um, the Greek expositors of Rigen, Cyril, Vaxander, Chrysostom, Nanus, and Theophylact all fail to comment on the passage. These are church fathers from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. They don't comment on this. They talk about the book of John. They talk about all the things in John. They don't comment on this. All right? And then 
And those texts that do have it, it's in different places depending on what text it is. Sometimes it appears after verse 36, sometimes after verse 44. It is really um, not consistent. If you read the text and you go from John 7:52 to 8:12, the text flows perfectly fine. You really, you really don't miss anything with this. But Alan, should it be identified? You know, I have one, two, three verses in that passage that are identified as Christ's own words. I yeah. Mean, written in red. Mm-hmm. So, so should that be so clearly identified? Well, to give the reader the impression that Christ. Well, remember, when the red letter, all they do is they try to figure out what Christ said and put those in red. That doesn't mean it's more inspired than the rest of it. Right, right. All right. Okay. So let's, let's ask a question here. Does the story sound true? Does it sound reasonable? All right. It does sound reasonable. Um, there are some ancient references to a story like this. And by the way, what did John say if I wrote everything down, the, the books could not contain... So John didn't write everything that Jesus did, right? He didn't put everything in there. So most likely, this is something that really did happen at some point in time. This was a true story. It actually happened. The question you're asking is, does it, does it belong in John? That's your question. That's what you're trying to determine. You know, and I believe when you look at all of the evidence, all right, it should not be there. It should not be there. Is it a true story? Absolutely. Is there any theological error in it? No. Is there any theology we're going to miss if we take it out? No. It's a true story, but it most likely is not what John put in his original letter. But what is it not unique that John, not being one of the Synoptic Gospels, did include much more information? Right. He put stuff in that the others didn't have. And most likely this was something that one of the early church fathers, and it may be an oral tradition that they remember this story of happening, and somebody could have put it in as a marginal note, and then it got sucked in to the text. It was hand over there. Somebody raise a hand? Okay. All right. So most likely the original text when John finished writing the Gospel of John, this was not in there. However, it is a true story, most likely. It is a true story, um, but it should not be in the text of the Scripture. Does that make any sense? Is everybody totally confused on this? Again, your job is a text. Now, are you, are you, are you um, wrong for including it? No. No. You're not wrong for excluding it because... You know, it's one of those things that could go either way. But when you look at all the evidence, I think the preponderance of it says, no, it really shouldn't be there. It really shouldn't be there. But it's a true statement. All right? And the reason I bring this up is because you're going to have people reading through the NIV. If you do precepts, you can do the Gospel of John. And somebody with their NIV say, wait a minute, where'd that story go? It's not there. So you've got to have an answer for that. All right? I wonder if Robbie's at yeah. Yeah, MacArthur does. Now, in the last ten minutes, we're going to do the long ending of Mark. All right. This is the other really hot button one. Um, Mark, the, the the Gospel of Mark. If you look at the last few verses of the Gospel of Mark, um, they have what they call the long ending and the short ending. All right. And there's also a medium ending, by the way. And when you look at all of our manuscripts, some of them have a long ending, some of them have a short ending, some of them have a medium ending. Alright? When you look at the earliest Greek manuscripts, translations, and all the evidence from the early church fathers, it suggests very clearly that Mark's gospel ended with verse 8. Verse 8 was the last verse in the gospel of Mark. Okay? Um, the, to our two old uncials omit it. The old Latin, Syriac, Ethiopic text, several other texts omit it. Um, Eusebius, which is a church historian from the second century, says that all accurate copies of Mark end at verse 8. So even he, from the second century, they're saying Mark ended with verse 8. So the question is then where did 9 through 20 come from? Alright. Jerome, by the way, who's Jerome? He's the one that translated which, which one? 
the Latin Vulgate. He translated the Latin Vulgate. He does not have it. Clement, Alexander, Arides, all these guys. Um, a number of Greek manuscripts that do include them note that older manuscripts do not have them. And other manuscripts say these are highly questioned. So the whole point of it is verses 9 through 20, there's scant ancient evidence that they're part of the Gospel of Mark. By the way, are they true? Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's, we're not disputing the truthfulness of it. We're not disputing whether they're true or not, or whether what they say is true or not. We're questioning, is that part of what Mark originally wrote or not? That's all we're questioning. That's the question. So when you look at this, um, there's, there's some other texts that have a, a little shorter ending. Um, and the shorter ending reads after verse 8, But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Some have that as the ending after verse 8. So you've got manuscripts that stop at verse 8. Some have this ending. Some have 9 through 20. All right? So when you look at this, what do you conclude? Well, the shorter ending, and what I mean by the shorter ending, that, that one I just read, most certainly was not penned by Mark. All right? And probably somebody, you know, they had verse 8, and they, they added something that's sort of at the end of the book, like you do with the, you know, the Psalms, where you add a little thing like this was when David was in such and such a place. They, they put a little blurb at the end, and that got brought in and copied and made part of a, some of the text. Um, the short ending itself only appears in this codex. All right? And some... Um, it does appear with some other things from the 7th to 9th century, but earlier than that, it's not there. This, this, this longer ending is not there. Alright? So how do you explain this little, and we're talking the shorter ending, the, the one I just mentioned, the little thing about the, the little verb. Well, probably in it with verse 8, and somebody just wrote a little note at the end just trying to round the book out a little bit to make it sound a little better. Alright? It's brief, but it's probably not part of the book of Mark. Alright, that's where it came from. Um, and you would not need the shorter ending if the longer ending was there, right? If the longer ending was accurate, you would not need the shorter ending. So for, for, we can pretty much say for certain that the shorter ending, that those additional few words there, were, is not part of it. It was some note that somebody put at the end of Mark to just wound it out, make it sound a little better, but it was not part of what Mark originally said. All right? I'm, I'm hurrying a little bit. I'm sorry. Now, if you look at the longer ending, it doesn't flit into the flow of the book of Mark. And in fact, it, it, it really takes, it's almost like a restatement of what you find in Luke and Matthew, right? If you look at Luke and Matthew, it's almost a restatement of that. The transition from verse 8 to 9 is abrupt. It's not a smooth transition. It's not like it reads very well. All right? It, it's almost an abrupt change of transition which would make it probably not part of the original. Um, the language, form, and subject matter of this doesn't really agree with Mark. Um, Tatian, Tatian, he's an older, he's a church father, he did include it, but it was, it was certainly known very early on, but it was probably not part of the text early on. All right, I'm hurrying, feel sorry, I'm hurrying through this a little bit. Um, but let's look at this. Where did it come from? It was probably part of an early catechism detailing Christ's resurrection. And essentially, it just fills it out a little bit. And what it says is true. There's, nothing, there's no error in it. But it's probably not part of the original text of Mark. And we shouldn't probably include it as part of the book of Mark. Alright, it's true. It's a true statement. There's no theological error in it. But it should not be included as part of Mark. I'm sorry, I heard through that a little bit. Here's the whole point of this, alright? I just hit four of the biggest, the biggest question ones in the Bible. These are the big ones. These are not like four representative hundreds of them. These are, these are the top, if you look at all the textual questions, this is the top four that I just gave you. And what do you notice about the top four? Is any theology altered? No. There's no theology altered. There's no no doctrine denied. There's, there's a question. That's all. And quite honestly, if you include or exclude them, you're not 
in danger of hellfire at all. Your job is just to say, what is the original text? And that's, that's the example here. And I try to use these because when you teach through Mark or you take a precept through Mark or a precept through John, you're going to hit this and they're going to have some discussion of it, I know, probably in there. And that's what I'm trying to do here. So, This, by the way, concludes all of our discussion of textual criticism. We're done now. Next week we're going to look at translations. All right? And then um, just, as, just sort of in the last couple of minutes, where we're headed this year, and I was talking to Sammy because she wanted to know like where we're going, where we're headed this year is, is we've got about three more weeks of the doctrine of the Bible. Then we're going to start the doctrine of Satan, angels, demons, and spiritual warfare. All right, that's going to be the next course, or the next section. And then we're going to do the doctrine of man and sin. All right? And then we're going to do the doctrine of salvation. And hopefully that will take us through to December. We're not going to get the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of end things stuffed into this year. It ain't going to happen. But we're going to get through the doctrine of salvation. So that's sort of where we're going on this thing. So any questions, questions or comments? Or I'm uncomfortable with Mark 16, 18 where the words of Christ talk about if anyone drink deadly poison, it shall not hurt. No cross-reference anywhere. Well, did Christ promise, I mean, let's think about this. When uh, Paul was bitten by the snake, what happened? Well, he shook it off. He shook it off. It was a poisonous snake. He shook it off. Is that, could that have been a true statement for the apostles? Correct. It's really... It only appears there. That's why I would say it doesn't belong. I would not say it's not a true statement. I would just say it's not part of the text. That's all. Again, Understand? Just the reference to the serpent. Yeah. Right. Is everybody comfortable with what we talked about? Anybody freaking on this or anything? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But you know, in this class I'm 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 trying to expose you to these other issues that you're going to run into. All right. And I'm not going to turn you into textual critics, but I'm going to at least help you understand some of the issues and there's other examples here if you want to go through the other six examples that show, you know, these are the top 10 here and I picked the top 4 of the top 10 to talk about. But this will help you answer these kind of questions and really give you a lot more comfort with the fact that the, the evidence and the research we've done gives us, you know, as, as close to the original text of the Bible as we can possibly get. You know. The thing that I need to explain better than I did when I referred to salvation by grace, meaning that if they're damning people to hell fire because they don't do the KJV, then salvation's not by grace, it's by the KJV. Right. They do. They do. I was talking to a friend of mine who's, who, who left a church, and the pastor of that church basically indicated that if you were saved, you came to the Lord using any version of the Bible other than the King James. You were really not saved. I'm not making it up. That's what he believed. If the verses they used on the Romans robe were not the KJV verses, you're not in. You've got to go back and get saved again. What do you do? So, All right, well, let's close in prayer. We're three minutes over. Father, thanks for this day and uh, for granting us this time of understanding. And thank you that... Even though there's a few passages here and there that there may be some questions about, nothing affects our real knowledge of who you are and what you have done. We thank you for the salvation that is ours. And we thank you that we can have confidence in the Bible that we read, knowing that you have preserved it through the years. In Christ's name, amen.